0: Feel like in my social interactions, I'm a total Well, maybe it's a very lovable
1: mess. Yeah, so, welcome to another episode of Page Divas. I'm Zain on site at UBC, which is on the traditional unceded ancestral territory of the Musqueam people. And I have a very special guest with me here today, my very dear friend Kieran. Hi, Zain. Oh, well, I'm really excited to bring this interview with Kieran because um, they're one of the really awesome people I've had the pleasure of getting to know well in Vancouver and has sort of really been an important part of how I think building communities for uh, women and queers of color in the academy is so important for our survival in the most basic sense. Uh, But Kieran, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so
0: my name is Kieran Sunar and I am a PhD student in the Department of Asian Studies here at the University of British Columbia. Um, my PhD work uh, is on early modern South Asian literatures, particularly literatures in Punjabi. Um, the language that um, was spoken in uh, both East and West Punjab um, crosses the border of India and Pakistan as we now know today. I look at these gorgeous romance epics called the kissa tradition and some of the circulating um, traditions uh, that uh, influence the kissa. And I'm particu- In particular, I'm curious about uh, gender and sexuality and the place of uh, women, uh, the place of women's sexuality, and the place of wonderment or the fantastical uh, as a site of liberation in these literatures.
1: Which is amazing, and like that's so, so on the one hand, this is a rich aspect of Karen's research, but that's not all you do, do you want to, like Karen is sorry, looking very very modest, but uh well, I guess I
0: also have been working for the last five or so years on a novel. Um, the current working title is nerve um and it's a, a love story, a queer love story about a young woman and uh who uh, migrates with her family to escape a land curse from Punjab to uh, the lower mainland, uh, where I grew up uh, and where I live currently, and um, and ends up falling in love with this land curse that follows that this embodied land curse that follows them, and so I've been working on on this narrative um, for some time, and I hope it'll be done soon. I don't know, but um, so I've been juggling those these kinds my academic work and my creative work for.
1: A little while i i can't wait to hear the whole thing we had a reading a literary reading a couple of weeks ago and kieran read an excerpt and it was incredibly beautiful and gorgeous i think that your work speaks to diaspora in such interesting ways like on the one hand you sort of talked a little bit that there's an interplay between like your creative writing and your research your uh, your own life and the relationship to the very things you do which is something that speaks a lot to me do you want to speak a little bit about um the Punjabi diaspora because that's something I've learned so much from you um, about this aspect of Canada I didn't really know about Oh,
0: where to start about the Punjabi diaspora well I guess to start I didn't even know that I was a part of the Punjabi diaspora which is uh, quite a large community in uh, located uh, on Turtle Island Um, in terms of uh, linguistics resonance uh, a fifth um, it's the fifth most spoken language in Canada um, after uh, English French uh, Mandarin and Cantonese, wow. so there's quite a large population, yeah, and um, and has a a really um, rich and joyful and traumatic and resist a history of resistance uh, and both anti-racist and anti-colonial. With um, the some of the earlier immigration being contested, so the I believe 1913-14 incident of the Komakatamaru where a, a ship was stationed in the um, the Barard Inlet, and was not the passengers, um, almost all of whom were Sikh, mainly men, three women, were not permitted to enter Canada. And eventually, I think only 17 were of the, I think over 200. The ship was forced to return, but they they sat in the port in the in the inlet for quite a long time, I think months, and and so this history has recently been, uh, there's apologies by the Canadian government, and a lot of work on behalf of different activists and community members, b- both Muslim Sikh and and non-religious, to to sort of reconstitute this history and bring it to, to light in terms of the Canadian um, historical sort of body. And then, I mean, there, there are all these other histories that I'm so fascinated in and interested and is particularly histories of farming, the way in which Punjabi immigrants predominantly come from small villages in Punjab. Mainly on the Indian side, in terms of who has settled here in Vancouver, anyways, and or the the Lower Mainland, the Fraser Valley, and how essentially you know, like Little Punjab has arrived here, and we have you know these beautiful farmlands that really like represent, like are so representative of Punjab. It, it feels like Punjab is here sometimes when, when you go through these these areas.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so important that you're emphasizing that history because I think that there's a way in the current north american mindset that like east asians and some south asians are so associated with things that have to do with technology or futurity but like not things having to do with like farming and so forth and this is and berry picking Mm -hmm. and uh labor so like if you
0: go into most gas stations in bc almost now um or like you know uh, southern bc you'll mainly see the punjabi um, workers working there security Mm-hmm. The field of security, loss prevention, um, taxi drivers, I have family members in you know all of these fields berry, berry picking as I mentioned um, and so I think that there is this sort of undercurrent of like Punjabi labor that is <laughs> moving you know Canadian industries along and I mean Punjabis are talking about them. there have been farm workers, union work, and there's a, you know a trajectory of history in Punjabi about this and stories in Punjabi, but we don 't see this sort of translating into the English. English narratives um, or education very much other than what's being done in, in Asian studies from mm-hmm. what I have seen. And then also women's um, stories or and queer stories. You know, I think gender identity is particularly classed and complexly, like as well, you know, uh, I don't want to write only one narrative of, of um, subjugation as well because, you know, those who left could leave and there is this, you know, the rags-to-riches story is such a compelling narrative, you know, and it's often the only one that we want to exist. Uh, We don't like our immigrants to have money. And and so, you know, and and at the same time, you know, as you said, there is this sort of representation of South Asian immigrants as, you know, tech nerds and and doctors and the sort of Lahiri, you know, like children of doctors and lawyers. and, And that is from my experience not not Punjabi identity and so much of my identity as a child and as an adolescent was trying to negotiate this the only people who I saw who were like myself in arts and culture were not really like myself i am the only person in my family to have a degree you know and i did not understand when i arrived at university what i was supposed to do there i didn't even know how to pick classes and so i think that these are some of the things that like like i'm seeing more and more in our community in the Punjabi community as people, you know, start to sort of gain upward mobility, I guess we would call it. I'm, I'm starting to see a lot more knowledge around that, but at the time, there there just really wasn't a lot out there. And so the questions that I have in my academic work also have to do with the fact that so much of my identity culturally was having to be left was left behind, uh, in part because of the axis assimilation. Um, mm-hmm. My parents didn't teach me Punjabi. Um, didn't have a lot of the sort of we didn't attend cultural events there was this real commitment to Canadian identity in particular and what I mean by that white Canadian identity so for me this has been also a project of of return in some sense so because most of the histories that are written are are written if they are written they've been they were done so during periods um, during either the colonial period Or are done mainly by men Mm -hmm. um, and the translations are often done also by men and so this is also an attempt I think to sort of peel back some of the the you know like the 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 sediment of what was Punjabi culture pre-partition and and offer it again to uh, to women, the question of like, what was Punjabi women's culture pre-partition? And other other scholars have been doing incredible work on this, mm. um, <laughs> so I'm certainly not the first. Um, but yes, my my questions are deeply personal, and I and in that sense, deeply for me, liberatory.
1: Yeah, that it really I relate to it so much because I had a similar experience, like growing up that my family did not speak Cantonese at home with me because like there's such an emphasis that like if we want our children to succeed, we can't hold them back in a way by like giving them mm-hmm. like the, the language of uh of that culture which is so strange like we, they did send me to chinese school for a while but because i was like the only kid who didn't speak it at home like none of i retained none of it and there's this sort of odd thing that like even later when i was curious about learning cantonese only fairly recently cantonese is uh, the teaching of cantonese has completely been phasing out in an academic setting because of the rise of mandarin and so for example like i know that uh Cornell, at Cornell, there's one, like, lecturer who teaches Cantonese, and once they retire, that's it. Um, And likewise, my understanding when we were talking to a friend, Christy, is that, like, there's only Mandarin, and likewise, no Cantonese being taught. So there's a sort of weird thing that even if I wanted to learn, you know, Chinese, broadly speaking, it's not the language that was part of my family that I could have used to, that I could use to, like, talk to older members of my family at all, which Mm -hmm. it feels very strange. Mm-hmm.
0: And even in Punjabi similarly there is there's so many different um, dialects and vernaculars, and I think that's one of the coolest things about Punjabi that because of the late regulation of the language, so it really a dictionary didn't exist until I think the eighteenth ni- or nineteenth century oh wow you have this incredible multivocality of this language, so it, people can will do imitative accents of different different kinds of Languages and you can be in a one village and go one village over another village over and be talking to somebody in a complete like who's of a different caste or has you know a different family background or a different religion and speaks completely differently and I remember I was doing some uh, recordings of some of the kisses, like the the oral or um, uh, romantic romance epics that I work on though I mainly work from a, a sort of literary site but I, w- I was recording these while I was um, visiting friends who speak a very academic Punjabi and we went one village over and there was this guy and I, I couldn't understand the thing he was saying which is really embarrassing and shameful. And you know, like it comes with all those sorts, the, the, the diasporic shame of not knowing. Yes, um, yes, like are you really enough for yes, this, right? Exactly, yeah. and and they were like, Karen, if we understood him, we would be, you know, if you understood everything he was saying, you would be teaching us Punjabi. They were like, this is a very, um, what did they call it? They said, this is the Punjabi of the uneducated, but it was also the Punjabi of this, incredible art form so Mm -hmm. it was this total shifting in terms of like the Punjabi of the uneducated is actually an advanced Punjabi that that with words that we don't understand and we we've lost the sort of the resonance and then here in the diaspora Punjabi is just totally has English in it every other word almost Uh at times so so even though the language has been retained and that's a beautiful thing about Punjabi in terms of people have done work on the fact that the fact, the fact that the colonial government did not support Punjabi and did not, it actually led to it, um, its proliferation. So, and so the mm-hmm. Punjabi is a language of resistance. I see it that way, um, and I, I think that I hope that with the work I do people who perhaps don't have access to the reading knowledge, which is most diasporic folks, unless they're reading mm-hmm. Sikh scripture, unless they're, they're reading Gurbani, hopefully will have access to um, these stories and these, these histories and perhaps even a little bit of information about, about them. I, my earlier work was diasporic work on Sikh masculinity, but I was left with questions of what does it mean to continually be talking about South Asia or trying to engage South Asia through the diaspora? That's important work, for sure. Mm-hmm. It just seems to be majority work, and everything else is sort of left in this place of only being seen as orientalist or mm. um, colonial, and I I
1: hope to kind of resist that. So there's a couple, number of questions I want to bring up, but one on the topic of language. This is something that I think is very fascinating and I think would be really interesting to our listeners who are coming from so many different disciplines. But Kiran studies so many languages. It's not just that um, they're doing so much of this research and everything like that, like the way that I'm doing. On top of that, how many languages are you working on right now? I don't know. Um, so I've taken um,
0: Punjabi, of course, some Persian, some Sanskrit, uh, and then French because I grew up They say here. so casually. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I loved French because who doesn't love French when they're 16 and they want to be the perfect Canadian subject, and uh, <laughs> um, and I still love French. Yeah. God, I love French. Um, and and then um, I'm learning German because I'm I'm moving to Germany for a little while for a fellowship. So, uh, yeah, I've I've learned all of these languages uh, poorly. Um, <laughs> oh, come on, give yourself more um, credit. And uh, there's a huge difference between reading a language and and speaking it. And I have so much respect for people who can speak in multiple languages because the pace and the the ability to kind of um, to talk in slang and, and verna- like speak in a vernacular like that is something that the human brain <laughs> I don't know you can't mm. make a brain do that so I can translate in a lot of languages now at this point and I'm I'm really lucky to have a lot of support in that mm-hmm. um, but I you know it's been it's an incredibly humbling thing to realize that uh, pre-partition and even now uh, people in South Asia you know um, who were educated and even not. Would have known three languages, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a huge Persianate sort of force, um, literary influence, and then, and then of course, um, what we now know know as Hindi-Urdu, and um, and then Punjabi in this particular area. So people were speaking, and you know, even now today, you know, with um, most uh, students will learn English in school, and uh, their mother tongue at home. That could be anything, and then. They'll also know Hindi, which is like the lingua franca. So totally humbling. I don't feel like my knowledge of languages is, or my baby knowledge
1: of languages mm-hmm. is anything comparatively. But still, like, I mean, speaking of humbling, like I find uh, your your work humbling in that regard. Like sometimes when Akira and I uh, would work together and they'd be like, again, juggling like... Learning three or four languages at once, and then, like the sheer amount of immersion needed just for one language is daunting enough, at least for me. And then knowing that you were juggling all those things at once, on top of like all the theoretical research work of um, the literatures that you work on, is incredibly impressive. And I feel like give yourself some credit for it because it's really awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I also think though that
0: like um, there is a place in our our brains for languages, and I really encourage folks to learn languages. I think. I think that we're moving more and more towards a very English-like Anglo-centric world, Mm -hmm. and I don't think unless like we commit ourselves to this, and I think that is an anti—you know, like a a sort of like not anti-English, but you know, an anti-monolithic linguistic traditions act. Like, Mm -hmm. I think we have to be able to at least be committed to to this kind of multi-vocality or plurality, if. And I also believe, you know, you lose ideas when you lose a language.
1: Um, Definitely. So, so uh, you mentioned Lahiri earlier, and since you you yourself a creative writer, how do you see how do you see the terrain of current South Asian writers, be it the fiction writers or, or poets like Rupi Kaur, um, and maybe what your relationship is to them? Inspiring. I <laughs>
0: I read across, so I don't know. I think when you start to try to write a book, you just become increasingly paralyzed by the fact that you can't finish your own book and and everybody else is making these books and and you I kind of have lost my ability to critique cuz I'm I'm just like you made a book like yeah. that's amazing um and I wish more people were making books you become very appreciative you know of of the gift of of what people do even if it's not perfect and I think sometimes we get caught in, in the critique you know Um, of what's wrong rather than you know what's right or what what it it did did accomplish um i just got ruby core's new book i'm excited to read it um i think there's something phenomenal and unappreciated about the fact that this woman wrote this book at the age of 21 and it has totally or you know maybe maybe it was published when she was 23 24 i don't know but it has totally, it's on the Canadian bestsellers list alongside mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood. I mean, we, I think, take, take that for granted a little bit. I don't care who's buying her books. I just think it's awesome that people are. Yeah. um, And that she has totally transformed the idea of a poetess, you know, into this, you know, she's filling up uh, theaters and mm. uh, we haven't seen that kind of uh acclaim in canada anyways i think in a long time for for a young poet female yeah, poet
1: and she's really also been held up as like that the forefront of some being able to use social media and poetry in such an effective way like i guess being i don't even know any of the in, other instagram poets i suppose
0: yeah um, i mean there are a number of instagram poets um uh, a heed um oh, okay. um uh, now my, my my brain is not working with names, but uh, there, there are a number of poets, and particularly um, black poets who are doing uh, similar work, and I don't want to discount that work as well, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of, and I, I would really call this a school of poetry that's happening of, of women of color, um, and particularly led by black women of color poets, but I also think that there are there are ways in which Rupee Kaur's work um, at, at the level of spoken word and at the level of the the tonality, musicality, and the the writing of it are are deeply um, based in South Asian traditions as well um, mm-hmm. and cultural traditions. And she speaks to that herself. So I just hope that there's room for everyone. I see a lot of like um, you know sort of scarcity model thinking in yes. the literary community yeah. right now, and that Very really
1: punitive. St- mentality too yeah like, it's something that kira and i have talked about quite a bit um,
0: <laughs> uh, that really stresses me out i don't know that we have enough room for that kind of lack of kindness or generosity yeah, like,
1: especially like reading the complexity of literature poetry through the lens of purity politics is really the, i guess really stifling so i feel like it's sort of like the she's also even though she's um so famous like she's become Sandra attack so much more readily than, like, maybe so many other poets. Like, you know, people, like, parody her work or say it's very simplistic, but then, look, okay, will you say the same thing about e. Cummings or William Carlos Williams or that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a way that she's an easy target as a young woman of color, but also that sometimes people, yeah, like, want to read art in a way that comes into this divide or problematic versus non-problematic. And, of course, one needs to be sensitive to the dynamics of power, but often, like, these analyses are more like condemnations that don't pick up on the nuances of the histories of that power much less the artistry of the object in question or the person in question
0: precisely
1: (laughs) yes you
0: said it and yeah i also i mean i read uh super mega across like i read a lot of literary fiction i i believe in reading not just uh south asian fiction i actually i tend to read i think uh, more uh, just generally uh, I try to read more women of color and I really came of age in this moment where um, I don't know what happened I don't know how I found all these books but I was reading Dion Brand and Nalo Hopkinson and Hiromi Goto, and Larissa Lai and awesome. and I was yeah and I was reading Audre Lorde at the same time and I I didn't know who any of these people I didn't know when they were alive I didn't know any you know I thought that they were all still living like I which most of them are but you know I was devastated to find out that Audre Lorde was not and mm. and I was reading you know Cherry Moraga and like and I just was consumed with this idea that like I too could produce um, mm-hmm. somewhere in the back of my head, or that there were people who were writing people almost like me and, um, and, and re- or writing the feelings that I had of, of exile or non-belonging or confusion or addiction or um, queerness. And so I, I think in that moment, there was no room for critique. And I, I think I still try to hold on to that, that sort of curiosity, mm-hmm. and that desperation. I know that that maybe sounds a little bit uh, depressing, but, but at the time it was just this survival, survival, yeah. and with it's survival abstinence. comes yeah. community and connection. You know, I, I think that, you know, friendship. Um, I, I recently heard uh, Helen Humphreys speak, and she said. Or no, it was Eileen Miles who said this. Friendship emerges out of need, you know. And mm-hmm. so I think that's really lovely. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that um, I think I I try to return to those moments that where I really felt that I needed these texts. I think it's a, it's a better place to be mm-hmm. than to consume them as though there's expecting there's something going that's going to be wrong with them and that makes them therefore disposable
1: Mm -hmm. definitely i was also going to say like so although i mean it must have been devastating to know that audrey lord was no longer around especially because her writing was so so gorgeous and vital and if you're uh if you're listening to this haven't read any audrey lord go forth and read her poetry and read her essays it's Mm -hmm. amazing stuff but I'm happy, like you mentioned Larissa Lai, and Larissa Lai was your master's supervisor. Yes,
0: she was. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just so cool. It was the coolest. It was really, what a generous and um, supportive and lovely human. I was really lucky to have her co-supervise my master's thesis. And uh, she, um, yeah, and at the, at the time I... I had moved back to Vancouver, uh, I'd finished my undergrad, I was trying to figure out how to write, so I was reading a bunch, and I'd, I'd read her work, and then I found out she was teaching, and, and so it was this like weird train of events, because I didn't really ever think I would do a graduate degree, I didn't think I was smart enough um but and anyway. well you know no like i mean well, but I, yeah
1: the imposter syndrome is real it's yeah. real and especially like
0: coming out of a place like mcgill which was very large and there wasn't a lot of um i had no advisor i mean i think i had somebody who just would check my courses and make sure that i yeah i
1: don't think i had i definitely didn't have that u of t
0: yeah so and that's part of the reason i chose mcgill i, w- I wanted to be a number um i didn't want <laughs> <laughs> i know already ready for my barcode I didn't want some of the like really hostile behaviors that would come out in my high school teachers because of my inability to comply to happen to me in my university education. I just Mm. wanted to submit my work and have it graded on the basis of it being my work and not on the basis of it uh, being connected to my body. I know now that that Uh that is not necessarily what happened, Uh but at the same time, it was really refreshing to be in this place where, you know, there were all sorts of different people and, and, you know, Quebec is... A place with lots of different kinds of resistance that is happening and the urgency of that um, was ongoing um, and I was there during the first reasonable accommodation uh, quote-unquote debates um, which is
1: sorry just to give some background for listeners oh yes um, so uh, in uh, I
0: guess in 2006 2007 um, the Quebec government came out with a, quite a paid um, some a researcher to do a report as to whether or not um, the government should re- what would be a reasonable accommodation for different re- for religious difference and this came out of a number of different uh, concerns around particularly around women wearing uh, uh, burkas um, mm-hmm. in uh, sports <laughs> in soccer I believe and and in and also the question the ongoing question of the kirpan And so, somebody went around, and it was like, I think over a million like 15 million or something like that dollars, um, I'm really bad with particulars, but, um, and essentially what was found was that Quebec did need to accommodate or something like that, and that this was, you know, a sort of, and there were a lot of critiques and and backlash and resistance to this idea of, you know, accommodation, what does it mean to accommodate somebody, Mm -hmm. what does it mean to tolerate, you know, who gets to decide that, um, and, and that is, Deeply connected to our current moment, where recently the Quebec Premier has um, issued a law wherein one must not wear anything covering their face when accessing public services. Oh yeah,
1: that's ridiculous! This is just like in the last week, right? Yeah. yeah. So
0: Chantal Herbert, who's a public comment. Uh, Awesome, popular, you know, public commentator. She said, "This is a war on sunglasses," which I really <laughs> liked. But um, essentially, uh, what this does is it takes uh, women who um, wear the niqab uh, and puts them in a position of, <laughs> of of not being able to access buses, libraries, uh, schools. Uh, it's it's deeply racist. It's mm-hmm, deeply mm-hmm. deeply sexist, mm-hmm. and it's uh, something which uh, needs to be condemned by our entire nation state. I think. And so I was coming. I I was living in Montreal when all of this was happening, or beginning to ha- beginning, or the the sort of governmental structures were trying to grapple with it. And so there was a lot of resistance, and there were, there was a lot of powerful movement happening against against it and also the start of some of the student and teachers union work that that has been ongoing and and then of course the undercurrent of of quebec's much of quebec's desire to uh to separate from from canada so all of these sorts of questions i think led to like a really terrible but rich environment to for me as a young person to Mm -hmm. think through you know what what did it mean where did i fit?
1: Yeah, and what was your major in undergrad again?
0: Uh, well, I started I started in psychology, and that didn't last long. But I and then I moved into I was really searching, and I moved into um, international development studies for a while. And then I was still searching, and I wasn't really finding what I was looking for. And finally, I found it in religious studies. Um, so my undergrad is in religious studies and gender studies, and and that was because there were a few profs in the religious studies department who worked on questions of. Uh, post-coloniality and gender and and South Asia and so it was the place where I I found post-colonial theory and uh, in, in action being mm-hmm. being and looking at ritual and looking at dance looking at embodiment and and so um, I just it was I mainly looked at South India which is not what I work on now but mm-hmm. it was totally liberating for me to learn these things and also the <laughs> I should add the religious studies building is really beautiful at McGill, like, <laughs> so you're like, and I think drawn that, to it completely. And yeah. I think that there is something important about, you know, the spaces that we inhabit being uh, beautiful or pleasurable to be in. So, yeah. um, um, and that there, was important to me.
1: There too. was a time for convenience where I thought I didn't want that to matter during my master's. I was like this is just this is just good enough. And then I was just so miserable within the brutalist <laughs> architecture. But... <laughs> I also think that's really uh, interesting because I don't think that religious studies is one of those disciplines that's probably well understood outside of it because it's probably people are like, well, is this just a matter of having faith or not having faith? Which of course is totally not the case. No,
0: and especially in the context of South Asia, in the context of what we now know as you know the Middle East and um, the you know these weird regions and geographies that you know when I when I look up in job, I'm looking at an area that was connected, uh, you know neighboring Afghanistan and Delhi and and parts of China and and so this this region that actually had lots of trade and flow and conversation and confluence happening um, and with that you know we can look at it through the lens of religion but we're talking about when we talk about religion is culture and we're talking about language we're talking about sexuality Mm -hmm. we're talking about the you know the you can do the sort of scriptural work and that that's important too because often in the case of Sikh scriptures, they're often translated, perhaps not... It's very hard to translate a language that, where gender can be fuzzy to a language where it is not fuzzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in Punjabi, um, there's often uh, a genderlessness to god uh, that then is translated to a gendered god uh, in English often Mm -hmm. and uh, Nikki Ganinder Korsing has done work on this Um, and so I mean I just love talking about these things because most people in the community they might know this intuitively but you know there still is value to having a PhD when in in a world where you know like in in a world where most people see that as you know like as as Having more knowledge, I guess, and yeah. and so it sort of legitimizes things that people had had been thinking or wondering, especially particularly women. You know, and I have to say, like having starting to do this PhD work has led to greater, um, like you know, people listen; they don't interrupt. Yeah, as much.
1: I mean, like I think that's what <laughs> our friend Siriana I think also says. So uh, Sirianna, we interviewed uh, her a couple episodes back, and she does amazing work on indigenous women's education, especially uh, mm-hmm. from the Pacific. But like her that was her impetus for getting a PhD just so people would listen to her as a woman of color. Yeah. Which seems so basic, but like is again it comes to this question of like survival and what we have to do to get recognized. They're still resigned, but they listen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or or maybe they just maybe they don't listen. They just quietly sit there and, and
1: and don't listen. Yeah, maybe, but they have to be a little bit more polite about it. Totally. Uh, So religious studies, and then your master's was actually in English. Did you come to the master's in English because of Lister Life specifically? Yeah,
0: I did, and and it was a really hard shift because English has its own... um, Yeah, I mean, these disciplines have their own methods, and that's one thing that I've realized uh, doing, you know, now I'm in Asian studies is that these methods are also so different um, and and often stuck in their own ways a little bit. So it's kind of, I mean, and there's value to that in that, you, you know, you need parameters, but it's sometimes nice to feel a little bit free in terms of knowing that that one can move amongst or between them. I work, I mean, I'm more region specific now, um, but I do do, I still do literary work. And, and a part of that was also the question of how come we're not valuing South Asian traditions, the way that we value, you know, the tradi- the the work in English literature. Yeah. So, so you know, you can talk to four people who are doing all doing work on Shakespeare still, and that's important work. I'm not discounting, you know, um, any kind of literary work. It's important uh, in our current context, mm-hmm. but how come that's not? Being done in South Asian traditions, or in you know Persian literatures, and I mean, I think it is being being done. I know it's being done in South Asia and in Iran and that sort of thing. But I think, I mean, we can we can contribute. I think we we need to contribute. We live in a
1: glo- a globalizing moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's sort of a definite regionalization of how scholars are recognized. Like, if you're not in North America for so many different disciplines, it seems like. Depending on the discipline, it feels like you don't exist in the same way, which Mm -hmm. might be a really harsh way of saying it But there's this definite definite regional bias that comes through I remember when I was looking when I was on the job market People were saying like there's uh, if you go outside of North America There's very few places that you can go to in terms of institutions and then be able to come back from because they're not recognized Mm -hmm. in the same way Mm -hmm.
0: Yep, that would be accurate Um, I I think that there are I know that there is work being uh, done to to sort of ensure that there, there are continuities between, especially when you work on, you know, something like the early modern or modernist, modernist literature in a different language. I mean, people who are in South Asia have an immediate leg up. They have access to archives and mm-hmm. they also have access to the language. You know, they might have grown up with it. So I think my hope is that, you know, in doing this work that we... We build more bridges in terms of in terms of that. I mean, I think I think there is value to theory as well, mm-hmm. um, and you know, like subaltern studies theory, which um, emerged in South Asia but now lives in the West, you know, more predominantly. And yeah, I come think, to think of it. yeah, and I, I think that um, there is room for us to kind of connect these works
1: in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, and I remember something else that I had learned from you is that even as, like, there's been a South Asian presence within the academy doing really important work, nonetheless it's, like, it's, and I hadn't realized this, was is very much a classed representation often.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that conversation, oh, okay. but probably, yeah. Um I don't know if you want to get into that. Yeah, um, I'm just trying to remember. Can you jog my memory a bit more? I feel like
1: because we were talking about, um, I don't know if it was necessarily vac or other people, but you are sort of saying, like, there's certain... Like scholars, even though their work speaks to like um, issues of difference and so forth, like they're all Mm -hmm. coming from a very particular class background. Totally. And so now we're seeing the rise of work that's done on
0: Dalit communities by by scholars who are of Dalit um, Uh backgrounds, or we're seeing, you know, um, work um, by like in my case, you know, I'm Punjabi and um, I'm doing work on Punjab, and I and I think that that is, I think it's important to have representation, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Previously, it was that, uh, you know, you would have had to have access to education, to literacy, to mm-hmm. be doing this work, and so I my hope is that um, in creating these sorts of site, these knowledges uh, and access to it through, you know, conversation and talking panels, talking to people, sharing this knowledge, that that people will become more engaged and that there is more support with, from within the community for this knowledge to be produced. and. Mm-hmm. Um, to be sort of like to reemerge, so to speak, and also ho- I, my hope is that it catalyzes more creative work because it's really hard to. And this is the other reason I chose to do a PhD, or the main one, really. I, how can I write? How can I write when I don't know my own literary histories? Mm. Like, how do yeah. I? When the only things I'm reading are diasporic literatures, or I'm reading, you know, translations of of mm. the Ramana, or like I'm reading Tagore, like but i don't I can't access the work that was coming out of my own region mm-hmm. um, and I can't access the actual text like the the or like you know necessarily I can't necessarily access good translations of the text then where what am I writing out of because then I don't even know like if I'm writing from like a sort of like cellular level, like I don't know where everything is coming from or what's going on mm-hmm. and and I really I believe in like understanding are traumatic and our histories of trauma and histories of joy in order to to be able to eloquate them you know and, and, and to speak to them and to also create out of them
1: yeah no, I think that 's very powerful also one thing I, uh, another thing I want to bring up is that so Kieran has uh, is such a well, has a really important person to me, but one, one way uh, uh, she, he gave me a lot of support was that um, he sort of introduced me to like some of the queer community around Vancouver. And um, different uh, ins- institutions like the queer, F- queer Film Festival and so forth. Um, would you like to speak a little bit about what is like community activism, like queer community activism? Like, what has your experience been like doing all this type of volunteer work and so mm-hmm. forth? What's the community been like in Vancouver specifically?
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, well, my community activism, I guess, started when I was at McGill and I was, um, we were, I was involved with Queer McGill, and we would just we had quite a large budget at the time and so we would just we would partner with uh, one of the PIRGs, QPIRG McGill and have What's these... What's a PIRG? PIRG is a public interest research group. Okay. Um, they basically um, are quite popular in the US. They are affiliated with universities and they do often like more left-leaning work. Okay. Um, so our Perg ran the, the Radical Frosh on campus. Um, that would happen. So like an an alternate to uh, the regular frosh that people could sign up for Mm -hmm. if they they wanted. Our perg also partnered with different communities and had, you know, different kinds of conversations about everything from Israel-Palestine to radical queer organizing. There were subgroups that ran out of it. And it wasn't just university student-based, but it was a place for university students to be involved in community activism with the mm-hmm. larger uh, populace of, of the city and so I was involved imbo- I was super um, involved with Queer McHale- McGill and a radical group called Q team radical queer group um, on campus and and we sort of partnered and we would have we would have really fun events and we would bring different kinds of artists like we brought Jose Munoz and uh, uh, vaginal cream cool. Davis um, who is one of the performers. Uh, when, uh, drag queen uh, that Jose Manio talks about in his in his book, "Disidentifications," yes, yeah. on queers of color and uh, performance. Amazing book. That's yeah, really amazing. an incredible book. And uh, we we also brought uh, mangoes with chili, which was a traveling uh, queer folks of color cabaret. And uh, there were just a bunch of events that we would host and bring to the Montreal community. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ran, like, I had a, like, queer of color art show or something, like, which we set up in one of, like, the bike shops. And we just, like, solicited art. And and it was, like, a big party. And there was, (laughs) like, this cool artist named texa queen who was in town from australia and she did like live like new drawing there and like it was just fun we had these like like it was just like oh i want to do this thing let's do it you know Mm -hmm. it was that kind of that energy and i honestly i think i spent more time doing stuff like that than i did on my like courses and so when (laughs) i moved here i kind of took a break (laughs) took a little break and and then i started to get involved in more kind of organized chapters so I worked for a couple of years for um well I was involved in queer of color organizing again with this group called Cutie Pocalypse
1: and I've been involved in queer writers groups um oh, a quick thing is like cuz I guess until I met you and Chrissy I never heard anyone say cutie pock out loud so I for a while just be uh, confused but this so the <laughs> acronym is for queer trans uh, people of color queer trans indigenous and oh, sorry. folks of color oh, yeah sorry. exactly no yeah.
0: it's okay and it's been I think it's been adjusted like, I mean, there's different sort of takeoffs on that, yeah. that acronym. Um, and then I got, um, yeah, so I've been involved in in different kinds of communities. And then I was involved at the Queer Film Festival for the last couple of years, doing festival programming support. And that taught me a lot about film,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: I just, and how, you know, I would always be like, where is the radical South Asian fantastical queer film with amazing sex? Why has the festival not programmed that film? And it's like because it, it, nobody's made it. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, and so it made me realize that like the demands that I often have for representation, you know, yes, are real, and and yes, we need to push, but we also need to create.
1: Mm-hmm. And also, you got. Um, I remember uh, you you got such an experience, like getting to drive directors and things like that. And yeah, um, but you also introduced me to uh, to quite a lot through that. Um, I'm sorry, what's it? The, isn't there that? queer South Asian film director, uh, we were going to watch the movie Outside Adores.
0: Oh, was that Chutney Popcorn? Yes, Chutney Popcorn. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's like a film that was made in like the 90s. Uh, And actually, we were having a conversation recently, I can't remember with who, about the fact that like there is so much out there that sort of just falls through the cracks in terms of like, like films and books being produced in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And then just because they're not new anymore, nobody reads them, you know. So, out yeah. Popcorn, and was... like, it
1: doesn't end up in syllabi often, totally. especially when it's like queer of color work.
0: Totally, like, so uh, Nisha Ganatra, who is now a writer for um, Transparent, and um, you know, like, has been a TV a, a writer for TV for a long time. She made this film. Uh, she was she's from Vancouver, it's queer, and she starred in it because the lead actor <laughs> dropped out at the last minute and it was basically a lesbian romance and it was about identity and belonging and i mean you know like it 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 there are parts of it that are are a little bit sort of you know we don't name our cool art things after food anymore um, that's mm. just you know that's yeah, that's like, like a, a shift now. We East don't Asian do that. Stuff has a
1: very fought relationship to like <laughs> describing food. Yeah, yeah, totally.
0: And like, is that for like a white eye? You know, like a white viewer? I don't know. Or but food is, is so it's important in...
1: for to us at the same time. So exactly. It's so yeah. Complicated. Like, love like, I love food. I take lots of photos of food as people who, <laughs> who are no. around me know. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> I now take photos of my food too to Yay, send to you. I really
1: appreciate it. <laughs> or like, I have so many friends now who are trained to like not eat right away when I'm when I'm with them because they have to let me take photos. But a anyway. photo,
0: yes, um, we are all trained. Okay. Um, but yeah, so I. Um, Uh, We went to an outdoor screening for that which was really lovely um, with the Queer Film Fest and yeah, I got to drive lots of directors and artists around and uh, make sure that their stay in during our festival was really wonderful and Hospitality is like such a wonderful thing like being able to take care of people and make sure that they feel comfortable in the The city that you call home. Yeah, I love and hearing about what their lives are like and and you know what they had to sacrifice to make their art and the joy and I don't know like when you see people who just have this like spark in their eyes because like that their lives are completely tethered to this this thing that they're making
1: it's it's really inspiring mm-hmm yeah sorry i I was just thinking of thinking about that as like a sort of a running theme as we're as we're talking, like the sort of real appreciation for the act of creation and how transformative that is. Anyways, I got to um, know Karen through Green College, much as I did with our uh, previous interviewees from UBC, Christy and Sirena. But now you're, you're going to be heading off. Do you want us to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what is in your near future or farther, sure. even further future for you, professional yeah. and so forth?
0: Um, um. I'm heading to Germany for a fellowship on religion. So I'm... I'm heading to a small town in Germany to do a to take up a fellowship, uh, a doctoral fellowship on religion at the Max Weber Center for Advanced Social and Cultural Studies. Ooh. I love um, spaces of interdisciplinarity and cross conversations that cross in any way, and I think that this is much like Green College, a space that will do that. I love spaces that are also committed to artistic practice, and, mm-hmm. and this space will do that too and i'm excited to live in a small town i never have and i think that there's there's something you know interesting about being known in a small
1: town uh, because you're be... going to be one of the few brown people yeah for sure <laughs> I, yeah
0: i mean i i will just be a you know um and i don't know like i we'll see what happens i'm i'm curious of course i'm a little bit terrified um but i'm also really excited i think in small towns again when you uh when there's so few of you <laughs> there's not the same kind of disposability of, of people based mm, on you know okay. oh like you don't have this one idea down so we expunge you and I yeah. have certainly with, bared witness to and uh, myself um, had to deal with the, these issues of you know um, what does it mean when your community uh, you know expunges you and and also like the fact that within our within our worlds you know we don't especially those of us who have access to education or are able to read something and then speak it right away. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. um, we sometimes don't have a lot of generosity for people who, who don't for whatever reason, whether it be anxiety, mental health, or, or just access. And, um, you know, like I often ask the question of, and I, nobody does this perfectly, but like, how do we keep our wounded? Um,
1: Mm.
0: and, um, I don't know. I think that's a good starting place. So I wonder about small town. I think it'll be a good exercise in growth.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about a it. town. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. I don't know. We have to make sure that we Google chat and stuff like that. Because of course being from uh, when I was in Ithaca for my PhD, that was my, also my first encounter with the small town stuff. So we'll have things to talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to hear about, about and learn from you on how to engage this.
1: Thank you so much, Karen, for joining me today. Thanks I for having me. We're able to pin you down to get this interview, and we g- we have to make the most of the last couple of months while you're still in Vancouver and before you head off. Yeah, and we'll have
0: to eat food and and take photos yes, of it. Yes, we've in e- eaten so much food together.
1: <laughs> uh, also, Karen introduced me to one of my favorite restaurants, perhaps of all time, Peaceful Noodle Restaurant. Handmade Northern Style Szechuan Noodles. Oh my God, they're so amazing. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Anyway. anytime <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also we have uh, so i feel talking to one of the things i mentioned at the beginning this whole thing about um women and queers of color survival ice cream for us was very important
0: i think last year we ate ice cream like multiple times a week
1: yeah yeah it was amazing and i, I tried to make sure that we did group selfies almost every time really yeah remember Oh my God. well i guess because you don't aren't on facebook so maybe you don't remember yeah. as much
0: yeah, well, maybe we can maybe we can make like a framed portrait of all these moments, like oh, a, yes. a montage, delicious
1: moments, it's A
0: collage, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, great, awesome. Well, yeah, eating around food is you know eating eating food, is like, <laughs> exactly. eating around food, which is
1: really what we do. There's such an abundance. Mm-hmm. But any thanks so much. This has been an episode of PH Divas. Um, you can. Like us, subscribe, uh, we're on iTunes, Facebook, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at, at podcast. And thanks for listening and Bye.